Okay, welcome to Angular Master Podcast. This is the second part of the conversation with Manfred Steyer. Today we will talk about Angular architecture again, but we will go deeper. Hi Manfred, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. After our um, last conversation, we received many positive comments. Thank you for your commitment and time. Thank you so much. Yeah, I thank you all, or the listeners, for joining and for being interested into this topic. Perfect. Let's start the show. First question for warm-up. What is strategic design and how can it help with Angular architecture? Yeah, so the thing is, strategic design is a part of domain-driven design. Uh, domain-driven design mainly consists of two disciplines, which is tactical design and this strategic design. And the thing is that most people, when thinking on domain-driven design, think on tactical design, which is about well-known patterns like factories, like entities, and so on. It's also a bit about layering. On the other side... A lot of people haven't heard about strategic design. However, as a software architect, for me, strategic design is the more important one because it tells you how to decompose a big system into tiny parts. Uh, it tells you to not write a big overall system, but instead of that, several tiny subdomains, subdomains that reflect areas of your business. And the thing is, the less those subdomains know about each other, the better it is. Because in this case, you can change one subdomain without breaking another one. I think we all know this issue that we have a huge application. Everything is coupled with everything else. And we cannot change a thing anymore because changing a thing always means we are breaking thousands of other things. And yeah. This is one way to prevent this by decoupling those subdomains. In your workshop, you talk about bounded context. What's yeah. this? Mm. Um, it is a bit complicated to explain, but at the end of the day, it's an easy idea. The idea is that each and every of those subdomains we identify when doing strategic design gets its own model its own domain model. That means we don't even try to create one model for the whole world because we know we would fail if we try to put the whole world into one model. No, instead of this, we model each of those domains separately. And the bounded context is now the thought border around those models, around those domains, the thought border And only within those borders, the model makes sense. Outside of this border, in other domains, the model does not make sense. Perhaps we have the same entities or similar entity names, but they have different meanings. Just one simple example. If you think about an e-commerce shop, then you might have a customer for selling and for billing. But when it comes to selling, the customer is a different entity. When it comes to selling to the shop, then you need to know a lot of things when it comes to the customer, like what is his behavior in the shop, 
and what does he or she prefer, what do they not prefer, and what did similar customers sell or buy. When it comes to billing, you also have a customer, but there it's more about the billing address, about the credit card, about the bank data, and so on. So you have two times the same entity or an entity with the same name, but it has a different name. Okay. Okay, that's great explanation. But how to implement a strategic design for Angular? So what I really like to do is I really like to use NX, which is a quite nice add-on to the Angular CLI. And I always say at the end of the day, you have still a traditional CLI project, but NX is teaching the CLI new tricks. And one of those tricks is you can easily create subfolders for your libraries. And so I would create one subfolder per domain, and then I would add several libraries for those domains. Uh, for those, the people that created an X defined several categories of libraries. At the end of the day, those categories are not that important for an X, but they are important for us because Uh, categorizing the libraries makes it easier to think and talk about them. And yeah, so I end up with several folders, having several libraries with different categories. And then I'm using another feature of NX, namely access restrictions. With access restrictions, I can restrict the access between libraries. For instance, I could say that a library from this domain is not allowed to access a library from that domain. And this prevents that everything is coupled to everything else. And this leads to the goal of strategic design, namely having decoupled subdomains that can evolve separately without breaking other subdomains. Um, can you think of any disadvantages of using NX? Well, some people told me one disadvantage for them is it is another dependency. And some people really try hard to minimize dependencies. My argument against this is that, yes, NX is another dependency, but mostly it is just a compile time dependency. It means it is not something that shows up at runtime. And that's why it's not a big deal. Let's assume it will not happen, but let's assume the uh, people behind an X don't continue this project anymore. In this case, it is not a big security issue because it's just a compile time dependency. And you could even... Um, you could even maintain it by yourself or implement something similar. I think implementing something like an axe is really possible even for normal developers if they have enough time. And so, yeah, it is not that critical as a runtime dependency like Angular Core or NGRX. Okay. Next question. What does incremental builds mean? Yeah, that's a very important topic. Perhaps you have heard the story that at Google, everything is located in one huge monorepository. Of course, having a huge monorepository makes it difficult to compile your application because you do not 
wants to compile everything all the time, something changed. And this is exactly where incremental compilation comes in. Incremental compilation means that you have some tooling that finds out what you changed, that finds out what your changes affected, and only the changed and the affected stuff is recompiled. Everything else is taken out of the cache. And of course, this is dramatically speeding up your whole build and CI process. Yeah. And next uh, topic is, um, you talk about it uh, on your workshop also, is facades. Yeah. And what are they about? So um, facades are a general design pattern. It is just about putting a coarse-grained API in front of a fine-grained API. And this makes those fine-grained API more accessible. You don't even need to know the details of the fine-grained API. You just tell the coarse-grained API, do this or do that, and the API then orchestrates everything behind it to achieve this goal. And in particular, I'm using facades um, as, let's say, let's say as a guard for my domain, as a guard for my domain logic. Because if we have a smart component, we don't want that the smart component has to know all the fine-grained details of my domain logic. That's why The smart component is just talking with a facade and the facade is orchestrating everything, which has another advantage. Namely, I can switch out everything that's behind the facade. For instance, if I use behavior subjects within the facade for state management, I can switch out those behavior subjects for something that's a bit more heavyweight and powerful like NGRX. And this in turn brings me to a principle I really like when doing software architecture. It's about, let's call it agile software architecture. It's about starting with something that's really simple, starting with something like a behavior subject. But also it's about making sure that you can exchange your simple solution a bit later uh, with a more powerful solution if you really need it. And if you need it or not, is something you will find out during your journey. Upfront, you cannot say if you need it or not. At least uh, very often that's the case. And that's why you just try it with the simplest possible solution. And if you feel after some weeks or months, well, I need something that's a bit more complicated, but that lowers this or that pain, then go with it and squeeze it in behind the facade. This prevents, and this is very important for me, both over-engineering as well as under-engineering. I made the experience that both is bad. I made the experience because I tried out both. Before I concentrated on software architecture, everything was under-engineered. That's why I dealt a lot with software architecture. I read books and so on. And when I learned about software architecture, of course, everything was over-engineered. Everything was loosely coupled. I had interfaces and factories for everything. And somehow I drove my colleagues crazy because this was code that was everything but easy to read and to maintain. And so 
suddenly I found out it's a good idea to prevent both. And this is one strategy for doing so. Yeah. Let's talk about NGOREX. Uh, how does stage management and NGOREX fit into your architecture? Yeah, so um, as mentioned before, this facade can do state management. It can start with um, something that's as easy as a behavior subject. And perhaps if I really feel I need state management because different components need to operate on the same state, then I squeeze it in under the facade, behind the facade. And for this, there are several levels. Uh, very often, I just start with the store, with actions and producers. Perhaps a bit later, because it's hidden behind the facade, I'm introducing selectors, mostly because of the caching behavior. Uh, I don't need the abstraction of the access paths because the facade itself is already an abstraction. And a bit later, if I really need it, I also introduce effects. Saying this, very often I uh, can really live a good life without introducing effects. And the best of this is the consumer of the facade does not even recognize because it is just dealing with the coarse-grained API of the facade. By the way, um, our friend Thomas Perlison did a great talk on NGConf about facades. Uh, he introduced this term, so I think I should give some credit to Thomas. Yeah, here. we should link it. Okay, um, next, I think a little bit a buzzword. Uh, what are micro frontends and when to use them? Yeah, it's it's for sure a buzzword. And it's perhaps also a misleading word because micro frontends aren't necessarily that micro. I mean, when we hear the word micro, we think on just one form, but they can be far bigger. Ideally, and this is where the cycle closes, a micro frontend is a domain, a subdomain that has its own application. That means we don't write huge applications subdivided into different domains. No, we write one application per subdomain. And this is for a reason. Namely, if we do this, if we separate this application-wise, we can have different teams working on different domains and applications. They can work independently without influencing each other. Uh, they can even deploy independently. They don't have to sync up that much. And this brings back, back a lot of flexibility. Saying this, um, mono, not monorepos, micro frontends most likely make sense if you have more than one team uh, you need to coordinate. If you just have one team, then perhaps it's better, perhaps it's easier to just stick with an NX monorepo. Okay. Are there drawbacks? Yeah, of course. Uh, there are tons of drawbacks. And that's why I'm not always recommending uh, micro frontends. Okay. I'm an early adopter of micro frontends. I'm helping companies since years with micro frontends, but I think I have 
not recommended micro frontends quite often, perhaps more often than I have recommended them. And that's for a reason, as you mentioned it, there are several drawbacks. Uh, the biggest drawback is with micro frontends, you are turning compile time dependencies into runtime dependencies. Because you are compiling everything separately, this application, that application, and then at runtime, you load everything together in something, into something I'm calling a shell. And if you load something at runtime that did not know about each other at compile time, there can be several issues. Issues in terms of version conflicts, issues in terms of bugs that only occur when those two micro frontends are loaded together into the shell. And this is something you have to deal with. Most likely, you deal with this by having a sound set of integration tests. Yeah, but when we agree that uh, it's a good solution, how to implement uh, micro frontends? There are several options for this. If we look back, I have some customers doing micro frontends since times where the word micro frontend didn't even exist. Uh, they just did an architecture like this out of business needs. And back then, you know, we didn't have anything back then. They uh, just used iframes. And yeah, that sounds bad. But as mentioned before, back then, this was the only solution And if you do it with a lot of hard blood, then you can even hide the fact that you have iframes underneath the covers. Even SAP is doing this already today. They have a framework called the Luigi framework, and this is using iframes, but it's also hiding iframes. It's one possibility. Of course, a more modern possibility is going with something like web components. Web components are quite modern. They can hide details of your framework and you can easily load them on demand into your browser. Another approach I really like and I think, meanwhile, this is the most straightforward approach is module federation. It's a nice add-on that ships with Webpack 5. By the way, This is the reason why I'm that happy that Angular CLI 12 ships with Webpack 5 because so it also brings module federation. And this add-on allows us to load separately compiled code. The best of this is that Angular itself does not even recognize that we load code that has been separately compiled and deployed. Webpack is just doing the heavy lifting Webpack is grabbing over and grabbing a component or an Angular module from another application, from a micro frontend. And from Angular's perspective, it just looks like ordinary lazy loading. And that's important because this makes everything easy. You can just use Angular as it was intended to be used. You don't need any extras, any meter frameworks, orchestrating different web components. No, just use Angular as is, configure Webpack module federation, and uh, you are in business. Yeah, Perhaps you... one, one idea. Sometimes the easiest approach for building um, 
micro front bands is just to go with hyperlinks. I know it sounds somehow ridiculous because a hyperlink, it's that easy. But if you have business domains that are really isolated from each other, where a user spends a lot of time in just one domain, then integrating them with hyperlinks is the easiest and the best way. Uh, it's also a simple solution. You can refactor a bit later to a more advanced solution to come back to the idea of agile architecture. If you think about Office 365, for instance, you have this very solution. You have Word, you have Excel, and they are interconnected using hyperlinks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about Module Federation? Yeah, so it's really the best thing that happens to me since Ivy, I always say. Uh, it really allows you quite easily to load stuff from other applications. And so it's key for micro frontends, but not only for micro frontends, you could also establish plugin systems with it. Just think on Jira or on WordPress, they have a lot of plugins and this is now possible within the front end. Jira and WordPress do this mainly in the backend. Uh, now we can do this with Angular and with all the other single page application frameworks. And basically this works just by configuring Webpack. You say, hey, I want to expose this file from the micro front end, could be an Angular module, And within the shell, you can say, hey, now I want to load this file from this micro frontend. And it really works. It really works if they had been compiled together. Also, it allows you to share dependencies. And this is vital because just having 10 micro frontends does not mean that you want to load Angular 10 times. No, you just want to load Angular one time And then you want to share it across your micro frontend so that you can optimize bundle sizes. Yeah, exactly. And uh, do micro frontends and uh, monorepos fit together? Yeah, they fit together. So at first sight, they don't. Because at first sight, the story is we have different teams working on different applications and everything is only integrated at runtime. But at second sight, they really fit together. Because if the teams work in the same monorepo, sharing code becomes easier. Of course, in theory, you won't share any code when it comes to a micro frontend architecture, in theory. But in practice, there's always some code to share. Um, most likely technical code like your authentication library, like your design system, like your locking library. Perhaps you even have some uh, libraries with components you want to share, use case specific components. It's not perfect because it couples the teams to each other. But before you re-implement a component that takes, let's say, two weeks to be implemented, you will better share it, I guess. I had this with a customer. They had a very uh, difficult use case specific grid. It was not such a general purpose grid. It was a use case specific grid uh, for billing and for reporting, and they decided to share it. 
And yeah, that's easier with the Mono Reaper because uh, you don't need to version your libraries. You don't need to NPM publish them. You don't need to NPM install them. You don't need to version them again after a bug. You don't need to NPM publish them again after a bug and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really easier. And nevertheless, you can have uh, separate deployments because no one says that having everything in one mono repo forces you to deploy everything together. No, you can decide upon when to deploy this application, when to deploy that application. Of course, if you want to have the highest degree of flexibility, you have to go with separate repositories. But I always say this comes with a price. Having separate repositories allows you to mix and match different versions. But at the end of the day, you need to download those versions of Angular, for instance, into the browser. And downloading different versions of the same uh, framework into one browser window is not necessarily speeding up your startup performance. So better be careful when it comes to this. And as mentioned before, sharing code is more difficult. Yeah, more flexibility. But on the other side, as the Americans say, beware your wishes, they might become true. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what about web components? Also help with micro frontends? Yeah, they can help with micro frontends. Nowadays, as we have module federation, I would prefer module federation first. But if you need to deal with version conflicts with different versions of Angular and React, then web components really help because web components can hide the used framework underneath the covers. That means you can use a web component built with Angular 11 together with a web component built with Angular 12 together with a web component built with React. This really works nicely. The drawback is you have to download several frameworks and versions into your browser. But this is one more time where module federation comes into play. Because if you combine Uh, if you combine web components with module federation, you get the best of both worlds, namely combining different versions and frameworks and sharing the same version where the same version is needed. So you really have the best of both worlds. Okay, yeah. And uh, I think a very interesting question is how to communicate uh, properly with, uh, between micro frontends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. This is really an interesting question because it's one more time a trade-off situation. And software architecture is full of trade-off situations. On the one side, you want to have fully isolated micro frontends that don't know about each other. And on the other side, you want to communicate between them. So what do we want? Well, We want to have both, but we cannot have both. We cannot have the uh, cake and eat it. And so we need to find the sweet spot between those two extremators. And the sweet spot is very often when it comes to sharing a handful of context information. So I would really 
decide against sharing a common cache. No, don't do this. This would couple the microfrontends too tightly to each other. But sharing a handful context information like who is the user, about which time frame to be talk, who is the customer or the patient in the hospital. This could be nice because we don't want to reselect the same customer the same time period time and again. Uh, and this can be done by a shared library. Sharing a library is not only about sharing source code, it's also about sharing data. Because if you share the source code, then you only have one instance of this library in your main memory, in your browser window. And so you can use this library as a mediator. For instance, as a blackboard, you write something into it and another micro front that reads from it. Of course, using a blackboard is not that nice because writing on a blackboard and hoping that other people see it is a bit risky. Uh, that's why I like the idea of a message bus. But this really sounds a bit over the top because at the end of the day, a message bus is just, let's call it as it is, a service with some kind of subject. Someone is writing an event into it, a domain event, and someone else is reading it. Perhaps no one is reading it, The good thing is we do not care. We are just emitting the event and everything that is interested into it reads it. Everyone else is leaving it alone. So it's quite unobtrusive. And this is for sure one way to communicate without creating coupling. Yeah. So the second question is uh, how to implement security in micro frontends. Yeah. So in general, you have two big possibilities when it comes to security, uh, especially to authentication and authorization. The easiest approach is, of course, using cookies. But cookies are not that flexible and there are some attacks. I mean, it's getting better because cookies evolved a lot over the last year. We've got a lot of additional attributes, uh, making sure it is not stalled that easy, preventing cross-site request forgery and so on. But uh, in general, cookies are not that flexible. Something that's a bit more flexible is going with security tokens. And in this case, you get just a security token after logging in to some identity provider, which could even be Active Directory or some cloud-based solution. And after you've get this token, which is technically just a string, you can give this token to all your micro frontends and they can use it in turn to access the backend. There are more complicated scenarios where it comes to token exchange. Here we talk about federated security, but basically it's about passing around strings. And then there is a hybrid solution where you go with cookies because it's easy for you and because it's quite secure meanwhile because of how cookies evolved in the last year. Think on same side cookies, for instance. And behind your backend for frontend, you exchange this cookie for an access token you are using to access the real backend. 
this would be an hybrid approach, which, which brings kind of best of both worlds. But at the end of the day, it boils down to using cookies and or access tokens that are technically just strings you are passing around. Let's go back to our lovely Angular. Will Ivy change how we architect our Angular solution? I hope so. I mean, if we look how Ivy works underneath the covers, we see that it has a lot of potential that is currently not used. Ivy has been built with a lot of smart ideas in mind. Currently, the focus is mainly on, let's say, backwards compatibility and on smaller bundle sizes. But in the future, uh, I hope at least that we will get a lot of this potential Ivy brings in the public API of Angular. Currently, if we use the private API of Ivy, we can do amazing things. Perhaps uh, one funny thing is Ivy does not care about your Angular modules at runtime. Not at yours and not about mine and not about others because it works completely without ng modules. The Ivy compiler is the last instance who sees your ng modules. The Ivy compiler is transforming your source code in an internal way that completely works without them. And so hopefully sooner or later, we will get this possibility in the public API of Angular. It's already on the roadmap. And I really hope now that the predecessor of Ivy, the view engine is deprecated and the source code for it will be removed in one of the next versions. We will also get uh, optional ng modules. One information here is important, namely modules won't go away. They will just become optional because skipping modules totally, getting totally rid of them would be a breaking changes. And yeah. it turns out that we did not make the best experiences with breaking changes in the Angular community. So it will just be an option. And this in turn makes your architecture easier because at the end of the day, you just need libraries and imports and exports. And if you want to group things that go together, exports that go together, you can export them from the same library, from the same barrel. You can even put them into a common array or into another data structure. So everything becomes easy. Another thing Ivy enables, and it's already possible underneath the covers, is going zoneless, working without zone.js. And a third possibility Ivy brings is um, meter programming, which means, in theory, you could create an Angular component, an Ivy component on the fly at runtime. You don't even need the Ivy compiler for it. Just do what Ivy is doing at compile time. You can do the same at runtime. It's just about playing around with JavaScript objects and you have a dynamic object. And this also brings a lot of potential, of course, not for each and every application, but if you have an edge case where you need a real dynamic behavior, this will be a, a game changer. Yeah, exactly. 
100% agree. Um, <clears throat> in addition to technical topics, this podcast focuses on people. At the end of the day, the human is behind all the technology, at least for now. <laughs> uh, you are known to be very organized and conscientious man. So let's talk a little bit about productivity. Okay? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it. Uh, how to be more productive? Yeah, good question. So honestly, I had to learn this during the years and decades. But something I really like to do nowadays is to focus on a little amount of topics. Because if you do everything, you do nothing at the end of the day. And if I go further with this idea, I even try to dedicate whole days to whole topics. For instance, I'm saying this is the day where I'm writing this article. This is the goal of this day, and I will really focus on this. I won't do five things uh, in parallel. No, I focus on this article. And if I have some time in the afternoon, I will do my emails. Uh, so dedication is one thing. And another thing is doing a bit of planning, like having a task list and writing down what you need, moving the tasks up and down. And uh, fortunately, sometimes a task moves that much up that you don't see it anymore. You forget about it. And somehow it even works without implementing this task. Yeah. So, uh, as you said, you plan every day? That's perfect. Yeah, so I plan on a daily basis. I like to do it before going to sleep because it frees my mind. Otherwise, I have to think all the time about what's next. But writing something down can really free your mind. I like this. And then I plan for the next days or the rest of the week. And then I have some tasks I want to uh, do when I have some time. And in my task list, I just separate those several areas with pseudo-tasks. These pseudo-tasks are called dash, dash, dash. And because I have a digital task list, I mean, it's just a task list on my phone, I can move the tasks up and down. I can move it in front of the dashed line or behind the dashed line to define this is something I want to accomplish today or during the next days or sometime else. Yeah. And you said before asleep. So is sleep important? Uh, does, it, does it increase our productivity? Yeah. Honestly, I did a field experience and yeah. I found out that you cannot really compensate uh, sleep by drinking more coffee. It works a bit, perhaps. You can even try it with Red Bull, but I think your heart is very quickly telling you that you cannot compensate this totally. Yeah, that's not good. Of course, you, yeah. sometimes having an energy drink, I know it's not healthy, but sometimes, sometimes drinking a bit more coffee can help you, especially if there are hard times, but it's not a long-term solution, not even a mid-term solution. So, yeah, I've, I think I work better if I manage to get more sleep. And unfortunately, 
I need a lot of sleep. So uh, having 10 hours a day makes really a good relaxed person out of me. Just okay. uh, giving me three hours a day makes a monster out of me. So <laughs> don't try it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's not that bad, but you've got the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you listen uh, to music while working? Um, not really, uh, because somehow it's distracting. Okay. Uh, I only listen to music or, let's say, to a talk show on TV when I'm doing something that's not that difficult. Uh, something like writing an invoice or formatting source code or writing an example that's not difficult but that needs to be written for something uh in this case i can listen to other stuff uh even to music on youtube or to um to a talk show where people discuss but when i'm doing something that's new for me then uh, noise uh, does not work noise music uh, chat in the background um, what about audiobooks? Do you prefer audiobooks, traditional books, or ebooks? Well, I prefer both or or three of them for different topics. Okay. Uh, when it comes to technical topics, I really prefer meanwhile ebooks. What I like with traditional books is they are a trophy. You can put them in your shelf and can say, well, look at this. I read this book from the first page to the last page and I kind of understood it. So this is my achievement of yeah. the last quarter or month or something like this. I even tried out the examples. But besides being a trophy, I meanwhile really like ebooks because uh, you can take them everywhere. You can take them easily to the plane, to the uh, to the train or uh, to the bus and read them, of course, again, after the pandemic. So they are a bit more comfortable. Also, you can search them. That means if you just need one answer, then you can search them using a full text search. When it comes to audiobooks, I love them for topics I should concentrate on, but I'm not an expert for like topics like management. I cannot read a book on management. It's, it's too boring for me. But I really love to have knowledge about management because nowadays yeah. it's all about working with people, isn't it? And for such topics, I really prefer audiobooks. And by the way, YouTube, just um, to find into a new topic browsing around a bit, finding out what's new, creating, uh, let's say, uh, a table in my head, a table with all the topics I should concentrate on in depth a bit later with audiobooks or with uh, e-books. Yeah, exactly. I'm also a big fan of audiobooks. If we're talking about, uh, for example, marketing stuff or sales stuff, yeah, it's, it's really, really great to... You can go um, biking and just listen to some great books. So it's, it's really, really good. It's cool, yeah. You can yeah. use your time in a meaningful way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So any tips and tricks for our listener regarding productivity? Well, I would say 
Focus is one hint. Dedicate your day to a little amount of topics. Yeah, and having a task list, moving tasks around uh, help helps at least me a lot. Yeah. It also frees my mind, as mentioned. That's perfect. Last question. Do you prefer scooters or mopeds? And why scooters? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, so I used this metaphor in one of my last presentations. Uh, I remembered back then when we turned 16, we discussed, discussed a lot if a moped is better than a scooter. And somehow this, this, this discussion was ridiculous because... It's always about your current environment, about your current needs and requirements. And honestly, when it comes to scooter versus mopeds, it's, it's more a matter of taste and it's more about belonging to this or to that group. But I really like this metaphor because it shows that doing decisions is always about your requirements in your context. And this is also true for software architecture. That's why you cannot say this is the best architecture and this is a very bad idea. I heard this very often. This is a very bad idea. This is ugly. No, there is not an ugly and a beautiful solution. There is only a more and a less fitting solution for a given context. And this is the case with all decisions, like with mopeds and scooters. And this is, of course, the case with software architecture, like micro front ends or just with a built monolith. What's better? It depends on your situation. But uh, as you're asking me, back then I had a scooter. I did never had strong feelings about it uh, because, uh, yeah, I just needed a Vespa to get to the next discotheque. <laughs> I grew up at the countryside, so the next discotheque was about 15 kilometers away. I needed a vehicle. I was allowed to drive. And in this case, it was a scooter, but no no hard feelings about this. What was the name? It was a Vespa or? Uh, it was not a traditional Vespa. It was from the brand Buch. Buch is, I think, an Austrian brand. Okay. I don't know if it is known in other countries. A very famous model of Buch is the Maximoped. But it's it's quite old. I think my mother had one when she was a teenager. I don't know if this is a known term. Yeah, this was. Yeah. By the way, what's your favorite vehicle today? Well, I really, I really don't like to travel. I really like to be there because I like to interact with people, to sit with them on one table or next to one table and discuss with them. But I don't like to travel. For short distance travels, I like to go by car. When it is a bit longer, I like to go with the train. If going by train means I need to sit there for more than eight hours, I prefer to go with the plane. Yeah, same. Okay, Manfred, thank you very much for participating in today's program. Uh, it Thanks, always man. it always great great pleasure to meet meet with you. Thank you, thank you so much. One more time, and see you around. See you around. <laughs>